Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 14th. 2022. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a good show with Dahlia Lithwick, a uh, legal expert. She is uh, Slate's uh, legal correspondent, and she hosts their law podcast on the destructive power of the Supreme Court, everything that's wrong with justice in America. Her book is called Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. It focuses on the Supreme Court. But there may be a bigger story to tell about the rottenness of um, the American legal system and indeed about big law itself. Uh, there's a new book out by uh, the New York Times journalist David Enrich uh, called Servants of the Damned, uh, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice. It focuses particularly on one uh egregious, if that's the right word, uh, law firm, Jones Day. Uh, and David is joining us. Thrilled to have him. Uh, David, is the book, um, the, the new book, Servants of the Damned, is it an indictment of the entire legal system or does it really focus mostly on Jones Day? Is the problem with American law and this connection with the Trump uh, regime, is it Jones Day or is it the legal system itself in America? Well, I think it's the legal industry itself in America. And I've used Jones Day as basically a vehicle to tell the story about the trans transformation of the law and the legal profession from this system that used to be about, you know, lawyers perceiving themselves as officers of the court and it perceiving the law as essentially a higher calling. And now it has become big business. And Jones Day in many ways embodies that trend, but it's, it's certainly not alone. And I think that, you know, in writing a book, it's, it's helpful to have a single character or institution that you can use kind of to tell the narrative arc of a story. And so in this case, I've focused on Jones Day, but I'm using it as a microcosm and a symbol of, a, a, of an issue that has really infected the entire legal industry. You go to the Jones Day website, as I just did, um, the front page is talking about itself, declaring itself a ceiling smasher. Uh, it's the top five for highest representation of women equity partners. Uh, according to your book, that's not the it's not just uh, ceilings that uh, Jones Day is in the business of smashing. It, there seems to be this sort of parallel world of law. On the one hand, these lawyers pat each other on the back on appointing female lawyers, African-American lawyers, doing pro bono work. And on the other hand, they're doing the really, really dirty work of, 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 of Trump yeah. and his associates. Is that part of the course, David? Is there something that's somehow gone wrong with the system itself, that they can simultaneously do both and get away with it morally and legally? Well, I don't know. It, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think that there is a split personality at a lot of these law firms where on the one hand, you know, to take Jones Day as an example, the, the firm has something like 2,500 lawyers all over the world. It's one of the biggest in the world. And it, it is 
on the one hand, you know, it does some really great pro bono work. It does life-saving work on the U.S.-Mexican border representing uh, undocumented migrants who are desperately in need of legal counsel. And Jones Day is there helping them. And it's a, they have a huge project. It's a huge amount of money on it doing great work. And on the other hand, they are, it's not just about Trump, right? Although they were and remain uh, deeply ensconced in the kind of conservative movement and were instrumental in Trump's election victory and staffed his administration. But it, it goes way beyond that because it, Jones Day and, the, and many other corporate law firms are in the business of representing big companies that get in trouble. And oftentimes the trouble they find themselves in is the type of trouble where normal humans are seriously harmed, whether it's because they became addicted to cigarettes, Jones Day represents RJR, the tobacco company, whether it's because they have overdose on opioids, Jones Day represents Purdue Pharma and Walmart on opioid cases, or whether it's, you know, baby formula, poisoning babies, Jones Day is involved with that. And so the list goes on and on. And it, what I've tried to do in this book is not focus so much on law firms representing what many people might regard as kind of odious clients, because that it, lawyers do represent clients that are in trouble by definition. I mean, that's and the nature of the heard, law. I mean, that's the, in way, yeah. David, isn't that the beauty of the law is the whole point of the law is to, is to allow quote unquote odious clients, individuals or, or, or firms, their chance in court to defend themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and although I think it's worth clarifying that at least in the U.S., what the Constitution uh, calls for is that people who have been accused of crimes are entitled to like competent legal counsel. And the reality is that often they don't get that counsel because so many of the best and brightest lawyers get lured with huge paydays to big law firms where they're representing corporations that are not charged with crimes or accused of crimes. They are helping these clients, these big companies do things like avoid regulations or avoid taxes or silence whistleblowers or, you know, things like that. And so I, to me that what I've tried to focus on the book is not just simply the representation of clients that maybe you or I or someone else doesn't like, but instead to focus on the tactics that they use in the representation of those clients. So I, I found a number of instances where Jones Day and plenty of other big law firms have engaged in tactics that I think would, to many normal people, be pretty surprising and perhaps pretty troubling. And that's not to say uh, that but, uh, Let me jump in, David. Um, are these tactics illegal? I mean, it isn't the whole point. No. Of, so isn't the whole point of, I mean, these guys know the law better than any of us. They know how to skirt it. That's what we pay them to do. Well, I, I guess it depends who you mean by we in that sentence, but there's... Well, when yeah, one hires right. a lawyer, one chooses to, uh, to use the system as well as one can to our advantage. That's just the nature of it. Well, I kind of disagree with that. There's a, the, the first chapter of my book starts with a scene in Cleveland, Ohio, where Jones Day is originally from back in the 1940s, when there was a, the, a big gas company there had a, uh, these huge tanks of liquefied natural gas. And one of the tanks, actually two of the tanks exploded. It basically leveled an entire neighborhood in Cleveland, killed a lot of people, destroyed, you know, was probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of property in today's 
value. And Jones Day was the representatives for this gas company whose stuff exploded. And they were brought, Jones Day was brought in to assess the company's liability and to determine what course of action the gas company should take in defending itself from what would certainly be an onslaught of lawsuits. And Jones Day took a look at the situation and realized that there was plenty of legal arguments they could make. They could blame the company that manufactured the plants. They could blame the company that like, produced the rock wool that was supposed to be insulating these uh, tanks. And instead, what Jones Day decided very quickly was that the right thing to do, just morally and ethically, but also for this gas company's future in America and in Cleveland, was to just simply admit liability, acknowledge they made a terrible mistake and they caused a lot of damage, and instantly pay whatever damages people thought were necessary to compensate for this tragedy that had taken place. And the gas company took that advice, made its, made the victims whole, and it continued to be a thriving company with that it, it remained in the community to this day. And so I think the notion that lawyers, their job or the expectation of them should be that they are going to be skirting the law and just pushing the envelope and doing everything they can to help their clients evade responsibility and accountability no matter what. I think that is a product of us being kind of jaded by what we've seen for so many years, but that's not the way it necessarily needs to be. And it's certainly not the way it always has been. Your book focuses on some of the very senior people at Jones Day, like Don McGahn, who everybody knows was uh, Trump, uh, intimate in the Trump regime, Stephen Brogan. I hadn't heard of all these people. Noel yeah. Francisco. This is the new, if, if one was a Marxist, the new American ruling class, or at least American legal ruling class uh, on the right of the Republican Party, Trumpists, if not probably that sympathetic with Donald Trump right now. Right. Um, does does the shift in the company, you think, reflect a, a broader ideological shift from a, a country club republicanism of the 50s and 60s, which you suggested might have meant that they wouldn't work on that Cleveland case to today? where they're infused with, and I use these words carefully, kind of the, the ethic of neoliberalism, that anything will work as long as someone pays them. Yeah, and I, I think that's partly ideological, but I think it's partly also born of experience. I mean, Jones Day's biggest client over the years had been uh, R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company. And they spent, the, the law firm and its lawyers, including Steve Brogan, including Noel Francisco, both of whom you just had up on the screen and who are the leaders, among the leaders of the firm, both of those guys and many others cut their teeth as young lawyers representing to a large extent companies like R.J. Reynolds. And the tactics that law firms like Jones Day used representing and defending big tobacco companies, we now know were completely beyond the pale. And they were digging up when people sued them uh, because of what we now know to have been very dangerous, addictive products, law firms and the companies themselves went to just extraordinary lengths to shame victims, to dig up damaging information about them, and to, in some cases, just lie to the public about the dangers of smoking and the dangers of nicotine. And by and large, those tactics were very effective. And I think that that was a really seminal moment not just for Jones Day, but for the legal industry writ large, seeing how these scorched earth kind of smash mouth uh, legal strategies, how effective they can be. And so I, I think a lot of what we're seeing today with big law firms, in particular Jones Day in this case, their ability to penetrate politics and to penetrate the government 
is that they're using a lot of the tactics that they learned firsthand in the trenches fighting for companies like RJR. Yeah, it's, it, it's profoundly disturbing. When you go to the Jones Day website, they have a, a section on values. They claim that they have good values and culture and governance. Who runs a company like uh, Jones Day? Is it senior partners like McGahn? And uh, I think Brogan is the managing partner. Um, Francisco, who's the partner in charge yeah. in D.C. Are these... Are these hierarchies that are essentially run by very, very powerful white men like Brogan and Francisco? Well, in Jones Day's case, it is run by one person and one person alone, and that is Steve Brogan, who is a very Doesn't look very nice, David. I don't know what he's like, but he looks, if you wanted to, for people just listening, if you want to paint a picture of a white, powerful, unpleasant looking man, it's Steve Brogan. Maybe he's nicer in person. Did you get yeah, to talk I, to know, him for this book? Did he, no, uh, did he return your calls? No, he would not. He was one of the only people uh, who is in the book in a, you know, a prominent way who would What's not. What's his background? Uh, I mean, all these people, the, the thing that's weird to me, I joked with you earlier before we went live, I've been married or I'm, I'm currently married to a lawyer and I was married to a lawyer, both one educated at Harvard, one educated at Stanford Law School. So fancy lawyers, and they all get this deeply moral education, supposedly. I mean, what law school did Brogan go to? Where did they, will these people he, get their education? Well, a lot of these guys, including Brogan, come from very uh, traditional Catholic upbringing. So Brogan went... Ah, now we're, getting to the, now we're getting to the heart of it, David. Well, so Brogan, uh, his dad was a New York City police officer, his mom had health issues and wasn't really in the picture. And so Brogan really uh, came of age as the son of a New York City cop. And he was educated, I think, his entire life in Catholic schools, certainly in high school. Uh, he went to Boston College uh, for undergrad. They went to Notre Dame for uh, law school. And Notre Dame is a place that has educated a, a great deal. There's a huge uh, kind of connection and overlap between Jones Day in Notre Dame. Brogan yeah, is on the yeah, board of trustees. David, let me jump in again here. I mean, in all seriousness, we can't have it. We progressives can't have it both ways. If you'd gone to Exeter and Princeton and Harvard, we'd say he's a he's a skion of the ruling elite. I mean, here's a guy who was the son of a policeman who made it himself. So we should, in yep. a sense, admire this class, shouldn't we? Do you think there's this sort of anger amongst people like Brogan against the traditional elites? Are they a revolutionary? Oh, 100%. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but there's, yeah. And I think that, I think that is one of the animating principles with Steve Brogan and many of the people around him. I mean, Don McGahn, Noel Francisco, Mike Carvin, who's another leader of the firm, all of these guys, they're, they're all Catholic and they all came up as kind of underdogs uh, in, in many ways. And so I think that there is a great distrust and kind of uh, frustration with the American elites, whether it's on the left or the right uh, among this group of lawyers. And I think that's part of the reason they meshed so neatly with Trump when he was a candidate back in 2015 and 2016. This is someone who really, you know, made disdain for the elites uh, part of his calling card. And the irony, of course, is that while these individuals like Steve Brogan or Don McGahn or Noel Francisco, while they are, have this disdain for the elites, their law firm is part of the elites and they're certainly representing the elites. And so it, they're kind of having it both ways a little bit, but I think it's born out of um, 
just this real sense that the mainstream elites were really just an exclusive uh, clique that was not open to a lot of these guys. And I, I, there's obviously a lot of truth to that, right? And, and, and also regardless of the truth, that's certainly a very resonant message that a lot of people in America and I think around the world feel today. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to discount that at all, but I do think it, it, it helps explain not only how they got in bed with the Trump administration, but why they were so impervious to the criticism of it and the perception out there that so much of what, that no respectable law firm should be getting involved with Trump. And I think Brogan in particular, his response to that kind of sentiment is that he is completely comfortable making the elites uncomfortable. And in fact, I think draws some pleasure from doing so. In our conversation with Dahlia and actually several other conversations, we've talked about this sort of conspiracy, this seemingly almost like a Roman Catholic conspiracy, irony of ironies to talk about conspiracies of Roman Catholics to take over the Supreme Court, much of it bound up with Justice uh, Scalia, funded by men like Leonard Leo. You write about this network, uh, this cabal you might think of in your book, is there a formal conspiracy in your view, David? Are all these people somehow linked to just not just taking over politics in America, but taking over the court and its values and the consequent decisions of the court, particularly associated with abortion? You know, I don't I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, but I, I think there's definitely a network of like minded people. Scalia, by the way, and his first real job was working at Jones Day and he has uh, he is a larger than life presence to this day within that law firm and and a lot of the people in senior capacities at Jones Day now had clerked for Scalia including Noel Francisco who is uh one of the most powerful lawyers there and but i don't i don't think i wouldn't describe it as conspiracy at all but i, I think that they are very and quite openly uh aligned with each other and with the federalist society in terms of some of their fundamental goals about how they want to remake uh, the federal judiciary and frankly, how they want to remake the American legal system and political system. And, you know, I, I think the, the counter argument to that is that they're, well, you know, you might, or many people might disagree with their aims. They would disagree very vehemently with the aims of the left and they would perceive the left as acting in a similarly quote unquote conspiratorial way. And I think it's just differences, the fundamental differences of worldviews and opinions. And but I think the right historically and to this day has been much better organized and often much better financed than the left. And I think Jones Day, at, at least in terms of their work on political issues, has reflects that and has become a uh, kind of a manifestation of that. I mean, your book, uh, Servant of the Damned, giant law firm, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice, talks in great detail about McGahn and uh, the connections between the Trump administration and uh, Jones Day. But couldn't you, not you, but couldn't one, and maybe books like this, I'm sure, have been written about similar connections within the Obama administration and progressive law firms in D.C.? Obama, of course, was a graduate of Harvard and filled his administration with fellow law grads from Harvard. Isn't this just the nature of American politics, either on left and right, for better or worse? 
And I don't think so. I mean, there is cert- there's no doubt that the Obama administration and before that, the Clinton administration and in between that, the you know, the uh, certainly the Bush administrations, they all have drawn lawyers from and, and administration officials from big corporate law firms. And it's also certainly true that many big corporate law firms, unlike Jones Day, skew to the left rather than to the right. And I think the most obvious example of that is the law firm Paul Weiss, which ha- whose leader and many of the people at the firm are, you know, very openly liberals and they espouse liberal worldviews. They put their money into liberal worldviews, things like that. Here's the difference though. Jones Day to, I think, an unprecedented degree managed to not only help elect a president, but managed to staff his administration in a way that reflected the firm, the, the worldview of the firm's leaders and also served to benefit in some very clear ways, I think, the firm's corporate clients. And that is not, to my knowledge, and certainly to the knowledge of people, a lot of people I've talked to, there has never before in modern American history been an example of a law, a single law firm wielding as much power inside a single presidential administration as there was with Jones Day in the Trump era. Do you think they simply recognized a remarkable opportunity to benefit themselves and their clients, given Trump's ideological vacuum and the fact that he isn't the most loved man in the world, and certainly not in Washington, D.C. He was an outsider. Uh, and he also loves the law and the whole his whole quote-unquote career has been built on jumping in and out of law courts. That, that it, it, it was simply, and I, and I use this word carefully again, I mean, just street smarts on the part of people like uh, Brogan and uh, and McGahn to simply take advantage of an opportunity. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that they rightly perceived Trump pretty early on as a bit of an empty vessel on some of the kind of the most important hot button, particularly social issues of the day. Abortion obviously comes to mind. And McGahn has and he he was he won the power from Trump. Trump delegated to him the power to basically single-handedly select the uh, the judicial nominees that his that the Trump administration would put forward to the Senate. And so you know that ranges from Supreme Court vacancies all the way down through the federal appeals courts and district courts. And I think McGahn rightly perceived pretty early on in the Trump campaign that this was someone a candidate who on the one hand was quickly emerging as a front runner and on the other hand was not really burdened by particularly strong beliefs on many of the major issues of the day. And McGahn had a very clear worldview. He really wanted to remake the judiciary. He really wanted to dismantle what he uh, disparagingly refers to as the administrative state, which is basically him trying to neuter federal regulators. And he set out to achieve those goals and he found uh, so I think it was in some ways, again, people can disagree about the politics behind this, but I think in some ways it was a kind of a master stroke by him because he found if there was a, a, a candidate who was had stronger views and had a much more kind of professional campaign infrastructure and kind of governor, governing philosophy, I think it would have been much harder for McGahn and Jones Day writ large to wield nearly as much influence over the course of his campaign and the course of his presidency. I mean, when you look at the photos of people like McGahn and Brogan, Francisco, they all look a little bit like choir boys. Maybe Francisco has the beard. I don't know if choir boys have beards. But um, 
you think they, these guys sleep at night? Do you think they have any moral qualms about what they've done? They're clearly very smart. No. And McGahn saw, saw this really from the inside. He saw the worst aspects of this Trump fiasco. Well, I think McGahn probably has some qualms about his work in the White House. In fact, he's been, I think, somewhat open about that over the years. But no, I think these guys all sleep pretty well at night. And I think, and in fairness to them, again, I I think your critique of this and many others' critique of this is that this is coming, these are, you know, conservatives and they're pursuing their conservative agenda with which many people may disagree. But for them, they view what they're doing as kind of upholding uh, the Constitution as it was written originally and and returning America to a state where they are very much more comfortable with the values and the laws than they have been under in more liberal times. And so I think they view themselves as doing what's right and what's best and that essentially they view that they can the ends kind of justify the means in a way and that they can deploy these really sharp elbowed at times uh, kind of envelope pushing tactics to achieve what they want, both in court on behalf of clients and in politics on behalf of their ideology and worldviews. And I think to them, that is the right thing to be doing, the ethical, the moral thing to be doing. And what's interesting to me is that regardless of where you come down in the political spectrum, it is it represents a really big change in the way politics has been dealt with through the legal system and through law firms. And we today have a number of very big law firms that had, were experts in the field of corporate litigation using those just smash mouth tactics that they perfected over the years, uh, fighting other big law firms or fighting plaintiffs and individual people. And they've now imported those tactics into the political realm. And I think that has the potential to really change, uh, not necessarily for the best, the way that uh, politics works in this country. I think, David, you're suggesting, certainly in the title of the book, that people like McGahn uh, and Brogan and, and Francisco, they shouldn't be sleeping at night. You're uh, your, your book is entitled Servants of the Damned. Are the damned, is it R.J. Reynolds? Is it Purdue? Is it Abbott? Uh, or is it Trump? Or is it all of them? Well, so the, the title is, uh, it's actually, it, there's an, I don't know, interesting to me. Uh, the etymology, I guess, behind the title is that there's a famous quote from a guy named Henry Stimson, who was a cabinet officer in, God, I think Truman and Eisenhower administrations, a warning basically that if lawyers ever came to be perceived as quote unquote servants to businesses, that would be troubling for democracy. And then I have a quote from uh, an American legal publication that talks about the great work, very successful work Jones Day is doing. And uh, for companies like RJR and gun companies and things like that. And it, the quote is something to the effect of um, uh, Jones Day serves the damned and, uh, you know, is damned good at it. There's, I'm, I'm getting that a little bit wrong and I unfortunately don't have the book in front of me, but there's, so the damned reference is literally from an article that was written about them a decade or two ago, talking about their very successful courtroom uh, fighting against or on behalf of big powerful companies that, you know, are accused of having caused a lot of havoc. Um, I don't, and look, I mean, the Trump stuff to me is more, 
interesting because it's not to me all that interesting in the sense that they helped Trump accomplish conservative things because that's not that surprising and they're conservatives and that's what conservatives do. And I think it's what liberals would do if they had the opportunity as well. To me, what's more interesting is the way that they use the connections that they had within the Trump administration to advocate tires tirelessly on behalf of some of their corporate clients like Walmart on behalf of some of their, uh, I guess, more ideological clients, including the Catholic church on a bunch of things and they really manage, you know, we all know this concept of the revolving door between government and the private sector. And Jones Day took it to, I think, arguably an unprecedented level with that revolving door spinning so fast and so aggressively that it nearly fell off its hinges. How far do you think that Jones Day and McGahn would have gone on the Trump stuff when it came to the election? I know he pushed back. I, I can't remember all the details. Yeah. I think uh, there was so much politics within the Trump administration. But how did McGahn and, and, and Trump Day generally respond to January 6th and the claims that the November election were fixed? Have, is yeah. there now daylight between them and McGahn and, and the Trump people? So McGahn left uh, the White House at the end of 2018. So after Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court and he Im- almost immediately returned to Jones Day. But Jones Day continued at that point to represent the 2020 Trump campaign. And they did so, you know, through the election. And starting in earlier in 2020, there was an increasing amount of dissent within the law firm about the type of rhetoric that Trump was using, warning about voter fraud and the risk of a rigged election. And there were a lot of lawyers, including some very senior ones, who were concerned that the law firm, by lending its credibility and prestige to what was increasingly seeming like a lawless administration. Well, they are really ceiling smashers. Uh, let's remember, David, they're ceiling smashers. So they, they're going to be doing something, right? Is that really what's on? I haven't looked at their website. Yeah, you got to look at the website. Weeks. I didn't they realize that. Um, they declared a ceiling smasher by Law 360 for the third consecutive year. I think some of this stuff is very dangerous. But anyway, sorry, back to Trump and the election. Well, so there was a lot of warnings from people, senior people, including Republicans at the top of the law firm to Steve Brogan and others about the risks of what was going on. And yet, Jones continued to lawyer, a guy uh, you you mentioned, Ben Ginsburg, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, And Ginsburg ended up resigning from or retiring from the firm just a few weeks or a few months before the election. But the firm continued to do a lot of work for him and for the Republican Party. And some of that included in Pennsylvania, which was probably the most important battleground state. The law firm was involved in litigation there on behalf of the Republican Party, where they were trying to make it harder for mail-in ballots to count. And this is, you know, in the midst of a pandemic. And they, the argument that one of the arguments that Jones Day was putting forward was that basically giving a little bit more time, three days for mail-in ballots to arrive after election day, given, I don't know if you remember, but the mail service was just so slow yeah. uh, for at the time. And so the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that if you didn't extend that the deadline for receiving mail-in ballots to, to three days after the election, it risked disenfranchising a lot of voters. And so Jones Day, I think rightly perceiving that a lot of those votes would be Democratic votes, went to court to prevent those those ballots from being counted and to and also sought to make it harder for other mail-in votes to be counted in other in other ways and that caused i think 
something close to an explosion within the law firm where there were a tremendous number of attorneys who spoke up in protest. And this is a law firm that is extremely secretive, that has places a tremendous amount of value on kind of respect in the hierarchy. Dissent, from what I've heard, is really discouraged often. And so there was this extraordinary uprising within the firm with people uh, just ex really dismayed by the role that the law firm was playing in a way that, uh, you know, to cite one of their, the firm's uh, former partners was essentially seemed designed to suppress the vote. And at this point, it's worth mentioning just for clarity and fairness that Jones Day was not involved in any of the really kind of outlandish uh crazy lawsuits that Trump and his allies filed in the weeks after the 2020 election. And so th that was apparently a bridge or two too far for the firm. So it, they were not among, you know, the Sidney Powell types who were peddling these insane conspiracy theories. They were Sidney making... I would never get a job at Jones Day. They would laugh for I, I think that's right. I, I, would, I would imagine, <laughs> I would imagine that... To be true. Oh, and so I don't want to make it sound like they were, Jose was like being absolutely crazy. What they were doing was applying the same kind of super aggressive tactics and kind of win at all costs tactics that they had perfected over the years working for the RJ Reynolds and Purdue Pharma's of the year uh, of the world. And they were doing it now, not in the corporate arena, but in the political one. Well, let's end, David. It's an important book and an important subject and important argument. Servants of the damn giant law firms, Donald Trump and the corruption of justice. Are there any uh, policy suggestions you would make in terms of, shall we say, reining in big law? And that's my term. I know you're probably not entirely comfortable with the term big law, but is there anything oh, to be done here? I mean, it's all this stuff is couched in on the one hand, on the other, blah, blah, blah. But can we do anything? <laughs> A lot of people are going to be enraged by some of the stuff that I, you're talking about. I, you know... I don't know about any policy prescriptions. To me, the like best, and this is just reflects my bias as a journalist probably, but to me, the best antidote to this kind of stuff is for there to be more scrutiny, uh, more public scrutiny of the legal industry. And I think it is, it's a shame that there hasn't been more written in the mainstream media about the inner workings of big law firms. And one of my hopes is that, you know, if this book does well, uh, like there will be, it'll incentivize people, other journalists to really pursue other kinds of kind of forensic examinations of other big law firms and the work they're doing. Because I think it is really important and in some cases very troubling stuff that's happening. And it's really, really important for the public and for aspiring lawyers to have a clearer understanding of what they're heading into. But ultimately we just need to rely on the lawyers at Jones Day to actually uphold that they, they're loud about their values. Those values aren't always realized. They do have a, a governance uh, architecture. They need to, what you're saying is they need to manage themselves a little bit more responsibly. Is that what you're saying? You know, I don't, it's not really up to me how Jones Day manages itself. I mean, I think, sure, I, I think picking, a... I mean, let, let, let's end here because you keep on talking and I, I'm in your camp on this stuff. You talk about you, you've you've talked about R.J. Reynolds and Purdue and Abbott several times are in this conversation. The book is 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 littered with references to uh, Jones Day's work on, on behalf of these companies. Should they be doing work for R.J. Reynolds and Purdue and Abbott? You know, that's uh, I I've really tried to steer clear of a debate about whether they should take on specific. Well, that's clients. why I'm asking you, David. 
I don't know. I mean, I think that's a that's a really complicated ethical debate. And there's, I think you could make a, a yeah, but you're raising case. it. And you've got to address it as well. You can't have it both ways. You can't raise these ethical issues. And then when I ask you about it and say, well, it's complicated, so I don't really know the answer. Well, I, look, I appreciate you grilling me and I'm happy to, well, maybe not happy, but certainly uh, amenable to being grilled. Right? You're just doing your job. But I, in fairness, I think the notion of whether a client deserves representation is a lot different and a lot more complicated than a simpler question, which is that there is, even if you accept that R.J. Reynolds and Purdue Pharma deserve the best legal representation in the world, which I think is a very debatable proposition, even if you accept that, what they are not entitled to is representation that crosses ethical lines or involves intimidating witnesses or coaching, uh, coaching witnesses or, you know, trying to use the levers of power and political connections to intimidate prosecutors or to bully prosecutors. And so I think without even diving into the debate over whether Purdue Pharma or RGR deserves legal representation, there's a cleaner debate to have, which is, and I'm happy to take a stand on, which is that nobody is entitled to that kind of borderline and, you know, at times I think improper conduct. And yet that is what a lot of big law firms, including Jones Day, that, that's a situation they've routinely found themselves in. Well said, David. I uh, couldn't agree more. Your new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice is a really important new book. You write for the Times, you know your stuff, you've done your legwork, really important, really complicated. But thank you again for the book and for a wonderful conversation. Um, what else are you reading? What other books would you recommend these days, David? You know, I have like been so burnt out on reading investigative stuff because I've been working on so much. I've really been in the fiction realm. Uh, I'm right now reading uh, The Lincoln Highway, which I love. Uh, I also just read what is maybe the best novel I've read in, I don't know, years, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which I was just blown away by. Um, I read recently, this is nonfiction, but not really in the genre I write in, but uh, In an Immense World by Ed Young. Yeah, he has a good book, and Ed was on the show. He's very good. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, so I have, at some point, maybe once I've had a cooling off period from promoting my book, I'm going to get back into reading kind of the more serious kind of nonfiction, like, uh, you know, Empire of Pain and things like that, which I loved. Um, but right now I'm just trying to relax and not get myself worked up with some of my reading. <laughs>